Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, Cycling in Alignment listeners. Thanks for joining us again. Today's episode will be with none other than Travis Brown. Travis is a good friend of mine and we've worked together on many projects. We've also raced together throughout the years in many different occasions. And um, anytime those races were off-road, barring one, Travis was the faster of the two of us. But I did get him once in the final stage of the Breck Epic in 2004, five, I don't know. Who's counting? Anyway, Travis comes aboard today to share some of his insights about his role as a product developer at Trek and some of his experiences at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. I'm sure you'll find our conversation to be filled with all kinds of wisdom nuggets because that's the kind of guy Travis is. So tighten your boas and hang on for a journey into the world of mountain biking with Travis. Forewarning, we do dork out on some wheel diameter discussions and talks about tires and things. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you'll like it. If you're not, then just hold your breath in between the philosophical bits. Thanks for listening. Well, Travis Brown, thank you for joining me on Cycling in Alignment. Thanks for having me. You bet. It'll be uh, just maybe an extension of our normal ride talks and we can nerd out on bike stuff and that sounds perfect. Our experience rolling around. Yeah. Yeah. For so many years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was actually trying to remember, like, how long do you think you and I have known each other? Well, I think we knew of each other probably before we like had a relationship because we were going to a lot of the same training crits on the front range. Yeah. You know, I road riding and racing was a pretty important supplement for me as a mountain bike athlete. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why, you know, I was based here in the, the biggest part of my racing career was the access to um, a lot of local road racing. Cause that's kind of a, a type of power delivery that's outside the parameters of the way you deliver power on a mountain bike. And mm -hmm. so it was a really key supplement for my training to mm -hmm. do crits. Yep. Good compliment to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, you and I raced the tour of the Gila at the same time one year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, I did Gila once or twice and we were on like this Trek composite team that, yeah. and, and Drew Miller won that year. Oh really? Yeah. And he, I think the first, I don't remember what the first stage was, but I think he took the Jersey the first day. So then yeah. it was like on the front for yeah. the next five days, nice. which was good. It was what I needed. Good training. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been the Mogion stage probably. Yeah. He won it there. Yeah. yeah. That was for Trek Landis, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Drew Miller. Wow. <laughs> Going back. <laughs> totally going back. Yeah. Cause he was teammates with Jonathan Waters <laughs> on Saturn. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. In 92, three, somewhere in that four, somewhere in there. Yeah. It would that have been sense. early nineties when I, when I did Gila. Yeah. Yeah. For a training race. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah. And we probably, and we were probably in lots of front range races. I'm sure. You know, that we yeah. weren't aware that we were both in. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different era back then. Sport is. It was. Yeah. I mean, particularly mountain biking, you know, it was more mm-hmm. in its formative and boom years at that point as right. a brand new discipline within the right. kind of scope of cycling. Um, there was a lot of special growth, I think. Mm-hmm. I feel lucky to have participated in those years. So you're from Durango originally, and then you went to school and CU and lived in Boulder for many years, but you're still, now you live back in Durango again. Yes. And what, what year were world's mountain bike world championships in Durango? Uh, the first official UCI worlds in Durango were in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, um, at that point, I was still ski racing. So I came to CU Boulder. Um, skiing was a priority for me, cross-country skiing. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of friends who were mountain bike racing, and I would train with them in the summer for my dryland training. But I never really raced. I had enough competition with the ski season, and that was my focus. Um, you know, as a scholarship athlete, it was a priority. Yep. But then I had... Uh, a coach, a ski coach here who had been a road pro and he kind of upped the amount of dry land training that we did on a bike so we could have more volume without the injury potential. And then, you know, training with my friends who were mountain bike racing or road racing, you know, my level came up a little bit yeah. and they kept saying, you got to try doing a bike race, which I finally did, um, while I was still in school and skiing and then started kind of moving into having a, summer bike racing program and a winter ski racing program. What was the first race you did? The first mountain bike race I did was the iron horse mountain bike race. And I think that was 87 or 88. Okay. No, 88, I think. So we started racing the same year. That was the first year. And I had just as being a kid in Durango done the iron horse as a, I don't know, peewee class, whatever the age class was. I think I did it when I was nine and 10. Um, my parents were into cycling and then I kind of, you know, I was doing traditional sports and in grade school and junior high. Um, and then I started finding my, my proficiency as an endurance athlete. And that started as a runner. Mm -hmm. And then that evolved into being a cross country skier as the priority. Mm -hmm. And then that eventually evolved into cycling. And the Iron Horse, in case people don't know, is a pretty um, well-established race in the Durango community. It goes from Durango to Silverton, the road race, and the idea is you race the train. Right. Right. Yeah, so it has this personality. of, And, you know, there's a story about two brothers, the Mare brothers in Durango. Uh-huh. And one was a cycling enthusiast and one was an engineer on the train. Oh, okay. So it's and, the brothers racing each yeah, other. Yeah, the brothers racing uh-huh. each other. And so uh-huh. the brother who was a cyclist was like, I, I think I can beat you to Silverton. Uh-huh. And, and did, you okay. know, it was a, a close race, you know, yeah. that takes the train about three hours to get there. Yeah. So for an enthusiast, that's kind of a manageable time in the realm of what's possible and they had a race and yeah. then it's, it became what it is today. Yeah. 
And then eventually yeah. it added a mountain bike race and added mountain bike race. And during those nineties years, like mountain biking was kind of the premier event there. Yep. And then road touring came back, mm -hmm. you know, on kind of a low part in the cycle on mountain biking. And it was the priority and it's kind of the way it is now. Like the road tour is the most profitable part of that event property. And it's because yeah. they can put 2000 people up right. the highway. Right, right, right. And it's really difficult to find a mountain bike race where you can have fields of that size. Yeah. And the mountain bike race actually stopped for about 10 years oh. too, as they focused on the road tour. Yeah. But so it's, but it's, it's back now. It's back now. Yeah. 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 It's evolving like everything. Yeah. You guys have incredible trail networks around Durango. I'm uh, just green with jealous rage. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely the, you know, there's a blessing and diversity of trails there and yeah. convenience of trails there. So yeah. Durango's unique from a geological standpoint. Mm. So right, right from town, we have like rim rock, sedimentary rock trails that are a little bit like Fruta. Mm -hmm. They also have Manka Shale that has no rocks in it. And we have glacial moraine. So it's like clay and bowling balls. You know, yeah. there's almost, yeah. a, there's a really big variety yeah. of surface there. So it's the perfect test ground for you to go try new tires and new bikes and new geometries because you've got all these different trail surfaces to it's play with. It's a pretty ideal place to develop yeah. mountain bike product. Yeah. You know, no place has every trail resource, mm. but it's hard to find a place that has more than yeah. Durango has. Yeah. And your wife, Mary, works for Trails 2000 and you and she have both played a big role in development of some of those trails around Durango, right? Well, yeah. My wife is the ED of Durango Trails. They They've changed their name from Trails 2000 ah, okay. as they evolved. Okay. And so that means that on my honeydew list, I get super sweet projects like trail building and sawing. And so um, Trek also, you know, in my current role in product development, they give me a lot of free reign to pursue advocacy things. So Durango Trails is part of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm a volunteer sawyer and machine operator and trail crew leader for them. Yeah. Um. And that's a pretty good, that's a pretty fun extracurricular thing. And it really kind of closes the circle on a career that utilized trails. And, you know, that was an imperative part of that mountain bike career path. Yeah. To go back and build some and do maintenance on them and yeah. expand the network. Yeah. Yeah. And just to paint the picture a little more for our listeners, Durango's, it's in the extreme southwestern corner of Colorado. Uh, pretty near the four corners area. Right. Um, and it's about as far, it's almost as far from Boulder as you get and still be in the state of Colorado. Right. It, Basically. Well, I think it's probably further to the Southwest corner from Boulder than to the Northeast corner of Colorado. For from sure. Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's people who lived in Colorado their whole lives and have never been to Durango. Right. <laughs> so it, it's a little hidden and it's a little isolated and that's, you know, there's two sides to that coin for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, we love it down there. Mm. And, uh, you know, for what I'm doing now, for what our family is working on now, it's pretty ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good playground. Yeah. So then, so you did your first mountain bike race, um, with encouragement from your coach and your your buddies, your ski buddies, right? And it was part of your dry line training, but then how, what, how did the shift go? How did you decide to focus more on mountain biking and, and steer away from cross country skiing? Right. So I, I think the first race I did 
was that mountain bike race at the iron horse and uh i raced sport class so it's not racing categories are divided differently now so it was beginner sport expert pro in right. the, those early days of mountain bike racing so i started because of my endurance background i started in the sport class and i won that race and thought well that you know, that went pretty good. That was a lot of fun. Mm. I, maybe I should try a few more of these. And so over the next year, I did a couple other races. And then the following summer, I decided, you know, I'm just going to make a, a summer of mountain bike races part of my dryland training. Mm -hmm. And I um, moved up to the expert class and um, did the Colorado Point Series, which at that point was just a step below the Norba Series in prestige yep. and number of events. And I won that series as an expert. And then I went to uh, the national championships, were in, which were in Mammoth, and I won the expert category there. And it was that fall, so that would have been 1990, that fall that the first UCI Mountain Bike Worlds were in Durango. And I was already in Boulder at that time as a student, but I'd planned to do that and uh, have that kind of be my transition into the pro category okay and i had to do a qualifying race and you know made it into the final and then i think partially because i really had no expectations and had no idea what i was getting myself into had a very natural open kind of premium race day and mm -hmm. ended up 10th in the in the pro category nice in my in the first pro race so yeah that was what launched my pro career so then the following year in 91 um i got a contract to race mountain bikes mm -hmm. um so two years left to ski 91 and 92 yeah. which i did and raced in the summer a full schedule and winter mm -hmm. a full schedule yeah so the first two years i raced uh for manitou mountain bikes my first two years as a, as a pro with Doug Bradbury, who had founded that company and was the engineer and fabricator for almost everything they did. But wow. he was just starting to license his IP to other companies. And one of them was Answer. So mm. we got resources to go racing. And I got to start doing the World Cup races then. And it was also kind of the beginning of my education in product development. Because mm -hmm. Doug, as the fabricator and engineer, was like, you can have your bike built however you want. Here's here's the way I would build it. Mm -hmm. You ride it, and then tell me whatever geometry, whatever changes you want. Because these and were so, these were aluminum frames, right? So had aluminum frames, and you know, fairly easy to change geometry yep. and and change in everything. And yeah. um, so I rode one of his bikes for a while, and I went back, and um, you know, what made sense to me at that point was I wanted a bike that was more stable. And the window, the mental window that we were working within for head tube angles was pretty small. Mm -hmm. So I didn't ask for changes there, but I did ask for a really long front center on the bike. Mm -hmm. And I think I asked for a bike that was a full two inches longer than the large that he was producing as a production bike. Wow. And because at that point, mountain bike geometry was basically a small derivative of road geometry. Right, right. Just because yeah. it was a new thing and like... Well, here's what you start to, here's what you start from. Here's bike yeah. geometry. Yeah. And then you really gradually, slowly adapt it from that to whatever the application is. Mm -hmm. And when we look back on that, we realize that 
we were taking these tiny, tiny steps mm-hmm. and, you know, there was all this potential, but we just didn't have the confidence to, to do things. I did it a little bit in that first year with Doug, just cause I didn't know any better. Yeah. I was not educated in geometry and, um, did so, you think you were nuts when you came to him and wanted a five centimeter longer top tube? Talking to him now about that, he, yeah, he thought I was nuts. Yeah. And then, but he did it anyway. He built the bike anyway. Mm-hmm. And we all rode it. Oh. We're like, oh, this thing is really stable. Like when you're slobbering and fatigued yeah. and you just need the bike to go straight. Right. Um, it right. worked really well. Hmm. So it was a really long top tube, but it still had a pretty, I mean, we're talking about a 73 head angle, right? Like in road. It wasn't that steep. Okay. Uh, 71 yeah. was kind of the 71, 70. Okay. It was about where mountain bikes were for, at that point. And then 71, 73 head tube, seat tube was kind of the standard yeah. for um, head tube, seat tube angles. Yeah. But chain stays were starting to move around a lot. And, yeah. and front centers were starting to move around a lot. And that's where a lot of the experimentation happened in those the early 90s as far mm-hmm. as geometry mm-hmm. then head tube angles started to be experimented with you know later in the 90s and that's still going on now so right right a cross country a contemporary cross country bike might have a 66 degree head tube angle now so mm-hmm. right yeah it took 20 years to, <laughs> to change those to six or seven six degrees. degrees yeah um and it's starting to slow down a little bit as far as head tube angles getting slacker per category. Mm. And it's also consolidating a little bit between categories. So yeah, when we started racing mountain bikes, there was one, uh, there was a mountain bike yeah. and you would go to a race and whether you're doing the hill climb or the cross country yeah. or the downhill, downhill. you were all you on the same bike. Mountain bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now there's, there's hardtails and there's full suspension cross country bikes right. and there's short travel trail bikes and yeah. there's long travel trail bikes yeah. and there's bike park gravity bikes and there's downhill race gravity bikes. So they all have, uh, their own geometry, mm-hmm. but interesting thing from the standpoint of head tube angles, that there's starting to be a convergence hmm. now again, mm-hmm. you know, in the mid sixties, mm-hmm. you know, a, you know, a cross country bike now that has a 66 degree head tube angle. That was a downhill bike of 10 years ago. Right. Right. Yeah. And so were these bikes that you were doing with Manitou, those were all hardtails or you guys were doing some full suspension also? So I was also on the cusp of full suspension with Doug because yeah. he pioneered. So my second year of racing, he had a new full suspension model mm-hmm. and it looked a lot like an old school motorcycle where it basically had a fork. So a shock that takes the place of the seat stays. Right. And that that was his design. I raced on that for a season, the second season that I rode for him. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a begin. that was really at that point, really progressive for a cross country bike. Mm. So that's so interesting. You were just saying, okay, it took us 20 years to get that six or seven degrees of head tube angle change. Right. And, and mountain biking is of sp- an arm of the sport that is ostensibly like much more fast to develop technology, much quicker to embrace change in, or it should be in theory. But I mean, you look at cycling on the whole, a lot of people have commented on how cycling is slow to so slow to change in so many ways. 
I think you look at the history of, of the disciplines mm -hmm. and it makes sense as mountain biking's 30, 40 years old, right. You know, depending on what you consider the start of mountain biking Yeah. and road cycling is almost 200 years old. Right. right? Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. they've been developing bikes that became bikes that you raced on, Yeah. you know, so it has a much longer history and legacy mm -hmm. and naturally over that time, there becomes some entrenchment in what the design should be like. Right. So mountain biking just has less history for us to fossilize our thought process about what a mountain <laughs> bike should be. Yeah. So it is, you know, it is a little more progressive in a lot of ways. And yeah. ironically, because of the material, you wouldn't have think, thought that carbon fiber would have been proven in the mountain bike category before the road category. But for the most part, that's true. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how people associate how carbon fibers changed in the, well, maybe in the consumer's mind, in my mind it has, because carbon bikes used to be seen when they first came out as super exotic, super expensive, but also fragile and, you know, potentially and not repairable. Whereas a steel frame was considered repairable. Like if you dinged a tube, you could go to a builder and have him install a new tube. Right. A tie frame, same thing. But actually now it's almost the reverse where steel frames, the, the tubing is manipulated so much that if you damaged a steel frame, you'd have a hard time getting a tube back in that frame probably. Whereas a carbon frame, now there's a whole subclass of businesses that are carbon fiber repair businesses. You right. can have almost anything in carbon repaired and sometimes to the point where it can be repaired to where you don't recognize the difference from the original product. Yeah. So it's taken this. And then also, of course, there's been massive technology developments in, tech, in carbon fiber where the carbon's become more ballistically armored, right? And more resistant to impact. And that's always been carbon's, well, in the past, it's been carbon's weak point is it's malleable. You can make any shape you want out of it, assuming you can spend the money on the molds and have the engineering to do it. So you can make intricate shapes for suspension or for aero tubes or whatever application you want. And you can do things like play with chainstay heights to make extra clearance, like on the stash, for example. Um, you can make crazy aero bikes with super, super bizarre shapes. Carbon in general, the characteristics have good fatigue resistance but not good impact resistance, right? right? But now that's been offset by further advancements in placing different different materials on the exterior form of the carbon to prevent from rock strikes, for example, right. or, or impact strikes if you crash. And and all, all the materials that are traditional <clears throat> for bikes have evolved. I mean, like you're talking about steel, like the budding for steel tubes has come a long ways from when we started racing bikes. Yeah. And... Aluminum processing now at this point, because of hydroforming lugs and tubes, now we're able to recreate a lot of the shapes that we once only could create with carbon fiber. Right. That's in, true. In aluminum. Yeah. So, but initially you're exactly right. Like the design freedoms for the designers to make shapes with carbon fiber was this whole new frontier. Yeah. You know, yeah. from round tubes and lugs, right. You know, to like, all right, any shape or any radius, anywhere you want mm -hmm. on the tube. And that was, I think, inspiring from the manufacturers and the designers. Yeah, for sure. Cause then you can, you can re-engineer a bike from the ground up and say, okay, what shape actually is ideal for this instead of taking a round tube and manipulating it slightly to get the job done. Right. It's like, we can make it more of a purpose built tool instead of just a pile of pipes right. that we and I think that those freedoms inform the manufacturing technology for, you know, the, the Ferris products and aluminum bikes. Yeah. Like there's even hydroforming now in steel, you know, mm -hmm. where they hydroform parts and ha that have unique shapes that aren't just a tube. 
and then weld them together or CNC clamshell shapes in, in aluminum, or now we're starting to see printed shapes. That's what I was going to ask you is what you think, what's your comment on the future of 3d printing and well, from the, from the standpoint of like the, the R and D group that I work in now at Trek, it's going to give us a lot of freedoms uh, as far as prototyping stuff mm-hmm. in a shape that's going to be more relevant to the end product when we eventually execute it in carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. And it'll make those prototypes, those prototype iterations cheaper mm-hmm. to do as well. Yeah. Right now, the, the quality of the material that's printed, there's still some compromises compared to forging or machining. Okay. So the grain structure of the metal is not quite as good when you're laying down those layers, whether it's a, a laser to heat a layer, like I think they do with titanium powder to get those lugs. Yeah. The, the quality of the material to kind of optimize like strength and rigidity and everything is not quite there for production level on our scale. Mm-hmm. Although there are companies that are doing smaller scale production bikes that employ 3d printing and the most prevalent right now is i think 3d printed titanium lugs yep bonded to either titanium tubes or aluminum tubes or steel tubes whatever or, or carbon tubes i think or, car- or, or carbon, carbon tubes yeah, yeah any yeah. any of those yeah. materials and so that gives a smaller manufacturer that maybe wants to do custom geometry and not be stuck with a mold yeah that, that you have for a carbon fiber to uh product frame yeah. whatever part that is which is fixed mm-hmm. um if you're printing something you know version two of the lug can be a degree different than version one of the lug without right. a cost difference right so the advantage there being whenever you make a carbon part you've got to have a mold for it and it's the mold is the real expense right the initial investment right and there, there's also ex- dollars. yeah the molds can are expensive because yeah. it's basically this giant negative piece that the carbon fiber right. schedule lays into so that's you know dozens or more pieces of carbon fiber with the with the fibers oriented in a specifically designed way yeah. to resist forces or to do whatever provide you want. strength whatever you yeah, want, to do, you want to do but 3d printing you don't need a mold that's that's fundamentally the difference you're just making the the three-dimensional object in space effectively instead of it being contained by a mold right yeah, so you you create the part in a CAD program. Yeah. And then, you know, once you have that, depending on how you've built the part in CAD, you can probably change a degree with a few clicks. Yeah. Or change the shape with a few clicks. And so those are really inexpensive changes compared to doing a new mold. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And that that's another part of manufacturing technology that's moving pretty fast is mm-hmm. is uh metal printing and mm-hmm. carbon printing mm-hmm. um and it's becoming less and less expensive all the time too so yeah. it uh it's not a, a really big part of our production process at the at the production level at this point but it's moving in that direction mm-hmm. it's definitely an, an emerging technology um yeah and do you think bikes are going to be do you think high-end bikes are going to be primarily carbon for the foreseeable future or are there other materials that are people talk about different stuff that's a big question to unpack because you know carbon is a big reason carbon's as popular as it is is 
that's what consumers want. Mm. And it's not the perfect material for every application. Right. But if that's what consumers want and are willing to pay for the price premium for carbon over aluminum or steel or titanium in some cases, then that's what the manufacturers will build. Interesting. This goes right to our conversation we had trailside yesterday. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, you know, there are factors that contribute to the success of a product mm -hmm. that are purely based on the performance of the product. Mm -hmm. And there are other, there are many other market factors, trend and fashion and, and, and other things that are independent of the performance. Right. And those things all have to get packaged together with the right recipe in the right amounts to make a product that's successful yeah. as a sales piece at the end of the day, yeah. that's profitable. So, um, you know, my group primarily focuses on the performance component. You know, we do field testing and we create a performance profile for a given prototype and we compare it against a, a best in class competitor and maybe our existing product. And we can say it's this, it's this percent better in climbing over this terrain, right? You know, that's just data. Yeah. And we were slower on this flat terrain and we were faster on this smooth terrain. And, mm. and you just build that performance profile comparison. So then the product manager can look at that and be like, all right, here's how the performance metrics compare. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in what I think the emerging market's going to be next season or in two or three seasons? Mm -hmm. And so they're reading trends within the market and potential of things that we can execute that aren't in the market that mm -hmm. are progressive. Mm -hmm. And can we convince people that this premium performance, even though it's way different, is actually better. Right. right. You know, there's, there's just so many things that go into a successful product at the end of the day in sales mm. that aren't just their performance characteristics. Mm. Uh, wait, let's rewind for a minute. Tell us your actual job title at Trek. What, what, Sure. Uh, <laughs> We've been describing all the things you do, but we haven't given people that frame. Right. So I, so when I retired, so after those two years racing for Manitou in 93, yep. I started racing for Trek on right. their mountain bike race team. And I raced full time on the mountain bike race team until 2005. Mm -hmm. And at that point I had found I'd been on this long path to getting more and more interested in the product end of things and being a testing resource. And I knew that I wanted to move into product development mm -hmm. and I made sure Trek knew that, you know, a few years before yeah. the end of my racing career. And so they gave me an opportunity mm -hmm. to be part of the core development team and to create the field science for development. Cool. And I quickly realized that I couldn't do it all myself. It was just way too much riding in too many different categories. And I started building a group of field testers, yep. you know, which you're part of now. Mm -hmm. And currently, you know, in our group that I manage out of Durango, there are a couple dozen um, field testers that ride development stuff or pilot run um, yep. products that we are just debugging before we turn them over to, to the retailers. And those people are, you know, basically my eyes and ears for the industry now, mm. you know, I'm, mm. no one can be in every place. So those people are super valuable and not just putting ride time on them, but telling me, you know, I, I think it would be cool if we did this. 
uh-huh. or I had this problem with the bike or what have you guys tried, you know, try something that I'm, you know, I think might be a good idea. So yeah, yeah. that pool of resources for me and for Trek development is invaluable. Hmm. So cool. back to what my title is. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think they call me a field test manager <laughs> at okay. this point. So that involves, you know, managing all the pilot run debugging programs, yeah. running field tests for development projects on the prototypes. Um, it also still involves because of my racing history, you know, some ambassador responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like I was saying before, they also give me a lot of free reign to pursue advocacy mm-hmm. programs. So Durango Trails is one of those. Um, for a couple of years, we've been trying to help the the reservations create NICA teams mm. on the Navajo reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've done that. It, it has taken a long time to actually create the relationships there just to get to the point where they would take bikes with no strings attached. Interesting. And we've moved past that okay. and things just move at a different pace, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. in, you know, on the reservation. And now there's no NICA this fall anyway. There's right? no NICA this fall. <laughs> Um, but they're, you know, particularly in the Navajo reservation. And, um, we also have a Hopi, um, composite team and they were together for a couple of years. So yeah. the Hopi reservation is, is an inholding in the Navajo reservation. Navajo is the biggest Indian reservation. It's the closest Indian big reservation to Durango. Okay. And, um, you know, as a high school runner in Durango, we would always go and run cross country events on the reservation Mm -hmm. and the, the level of competition for cross country there is phenomenal. They have a really, really rich history of endurance running, Mm -hmm. um, really similar, um, running traditions to the Tarahumara Mm and Copper Canyon Mm -hmm. and their high school runners are just phenomenal. So Mm -hmm. we would go onto the reservation and just get smoked, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm-hmm. And then we come to the state championships on the front range and everyone would be like, well, Durango hasn't run against us all year. How can they be very good? And we yeah. come to the front range and do great at state okay. championships. So okay. that, was the, that was the secret down there. <laughs> <laughs> so there probably are some, some good mountain bikers hidden in that population. I would guess if they've got some strong running background. Well, that's kind of, you know, yeah. my, my ambition to create a tool for self-exploration and connecting with nature and something Mm -hmm. to do that's inspiring Mm -hmm. on the bike is that they have this endurance tradition that is so applicable Mm -hmm. to mountain bike riding and to cycling in general. And they also have, you know, their reservation is one of the prettiest places on earth. Mm. It's spectacular. Mm. And, you know, people that go to Moab for mountain biking think that that Southwest red rock desert terrain only exists in Moab. Mm-hmm. Like it exists all over the Navajo reservation, right? There are places that look like Moab all over the place wow. down there. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, if you, if any of our audience aren't really familiar with Moab, you can go forth and make the internet searches, but it's basically like Bugs Bunny roadrunner cartoons, like giant balancing rocks and desert landscapes and stuff. It's just such an amazing playground. So red slick rock and yeah, big, big piers of red sandstone. And yeah, it's a spectacular place carved by wind and water for, well, not much water, more wind, I suppose for hundreds of thousands of years, I would imagine. Right. It's a, it's a special place for sure. Yeah. And we're, you know, another one of those convenience 
things of Durango's. We're only two and a half hours from Moab. So yeah. I ride there a lot, you know, especially in the winter when riding gets closed down because of snow in Durango. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've gone over there just for a day test, you know, when we had projects that really need to get pushed. Yeah. You just drive, and, uh, go ride some trails and drive back. Yeah. So that pretty much gives me year round testing in Durango. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You guys were like a couple winters ago, we had a pretty bad winter, but you guys got cream two winters ago. Like, right. I remember your, your wife basically being scarred by the amount of shoveling shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We had a really, we had a heavy winter two winters ago and our, the snowpack in the San Juans, I think was almost 300% of normal. Wow. And, um, that manifest in a really late high country riding season yep. and also um, trail clearing for that spring mm. of avalanche debris flows mm. has, it, we're still trying to catch up with that in a lot of places wow. in the San Juans. Wow. There are debris piles that are still yeah. not completely cleared. Yeah. So that spring I rode with an oat root group. We rode over independence pass into Aspen and just, I was, blown away by the avalanche debris that was had come down the the valley going in up going from twin lakes to aspen that is more like the west side the west side yeah yeah i mean just acres and acres like as far as you can see of trees just flattened right and then you could see where the trees went to the roadside and they had cleared the road and the road was all damaged the asphalt was all destroyed you tell they had heavy machinery there and then on the other side of the road the the flattened trees just continued and it was one of those moments where you just have that sort of perspective of the scale and strength of nature. Yeah. I'm really and glad I wasn't on this road when this happened. Yeah. And those, <laughs> those debris fields really inform how monumental the snowfall was that year because right. the edges of those slides had 50 year old trees in them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's and crazy. that happened all in the San Juans too. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you mountain biked for Trek for, what about 13 years from 92 to 2005 yeah. professionally. And in that time you got to have a lot of cool adventures. And one of them was you made it to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Right. So yeah. I'd love it if you could unpack that journey a little bit for our listeners and tell us what was involved there. Sure. Well, I think that Olympic inspiration for me went back to kind of a formative experience that I think most kids have when they're watching the Olympics with their parents like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to be in the Olympics. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first had that experience, I had no focus on sport. You know, I was still playing basketball and football at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but then when I started to find, you know, my way in endurance sports and running cross country and track, I started thinking, well, you know, who knows how this might develop. Maybe this could be the vehicle that could get me to the Olympic Games. Well, through injuries and reality about my potential as a runner i then became a cross-country skier and skied at the university of colorado you know skiing was also an olympic sport and i thought and i was getting a little closer to maybe mm -hmm. a reasonable goal of going to the olympics and i thought oh maybe skiing's gonna be it for me mm -hmm. and then i found cycling and at that point cycling was not an olympic sport mm. And so, but it was booming and I had the opportunity when I graduated to actually go into career racing rather than go to graduate school, which was, had been my plan A. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I'm going to do that. 
I'm going to see if I can just do one year as a pro and pay all my bills, I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll go on with whatever other careers I'm going to have and, uh, I'll be satisfied with that. And those opportunities continued to build. Mm -hmm. And then in the early nineties with the mountain bike boom, maybe 94, they announced that they were going to make mountain biking a full metal status event in the Atlanta games. Right. And so then that whole Olympic dream and possibility was kind of back on the table and was new inspiration for me. And I was just kind of coming into the good years of my pro career at that point and was kind of, you know, moving up and I made the Atlanta games a priority mm -hmm. and we had a five or six race qualifying series over the 95 and 96 season. Mm -hmm. And um, I was at the sixth race of six in Michigan and I was in a good place to make the second spot for the Atlanta uh -huh. games and pre-riding the course. Um, there were a B options and usually the a option was technical and had a jump or a log or something. And I was sessioning one of the a options, which was a, maybe a 36 inch diameter log that you could ride up and over but if you came in with speed and bunny hopped it you could clean the whole thing you okay. gain a couple seconds on that part of the course every lap yeah and i mistimed it went over the bars broke my collarbone oh so olympics uh, was out oh uh. and um so at that point i kind of had to decide you know is this ambition worth you know everything you invest into it mm -hmm. and is it something you should continue to pursue because you know that day and for a few weeks after that was kind of it was emotionally difficult to be like i was there right and now it's gone right, right. and so i decided to pursue it another four years okay um and i was going to continue to race because that had actually become my livelihood but mm. you know the the olympic pursuit is kind of different from that it's such a small number of people there's so many things that can go wrong mm -hmm. so i said you know whatever happens i'm going to pursue it again and Mm -hmm. And it'll be worth the effort regardless. And that got me pointed back in the direction of process rather than outcome, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a really important part of my personal growth mm -hmm. um, and growth as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And we had very similar qualifying protocol for the 2000 Sydney Games, where it was a maybe five World Cups. Um, they selected a long team in 99 and I'd won the national championship in 99 and, um, there were a couple qualifying races and then there were four, I believe four world cups before the Olympic games in 2000, where they made the selection. The first of which was in Mazatlan in that spring. It was a really early race. And I went to that race. It was really dusty and on the start lap. Cause I couldn't see the ruts and everything. I crashed mm -hmm. and I slid into a tree and I broke my leg. Oh. And so I thought, man, this whole thing about oh. the Olympics is replaying itself. Right. And, um, right. <clears throat> I didn't know I broke uh, my tibia. Okay. So slid out and was sliding across this dirt and my yeah. bike still, my bike was still attached yeah. to my foot. Yeah. I went on one side of the tree and yeah. my bike went on the other side of the tree and the tree hit right below my knee and, okay. and broke off the tibia plateau. Yeah. And so I went to 
a hospital in Mexico, like from the ambulance to the hospital in Mexico, just kind of shell shocked. Mm -hmm. And, um, the doctor said, you know, you're going to have to have surgery. And I broke down at that point. Mm -hmm. It was overwhelmed with, you know, that disappointment. And, uh, Mary was there and pretty much said, well, you know, there's two, a little over two months until the next world cup. Mm -hmm. There's two Canadian world cups that were going to be the last two qualifying races. And I just thought at that point, like, I don't have anything to lose by not continuing to pursue this and doing everything that's possible for me in, in my rehab. So Mary was an an angel in this whole process. She found all the best tibial plateau fracture surgeons in the country. Mm. And the best one happened to be right here at Boulder center for sports medicine, Dr. Steve Paul. Yeah. Who had, who'd done, I think he'd done his medical school thesis on this particular surgery, Mm -hmm. came back to Boulder, had surgery a day or two later and kind of hit the, hit the rehab, you know, as hard as possible, pushing the boundaries for sure. Yep. I made some really short cranks for my indoor trainer. Yeah. So that as soon as I had, you know, about 10 degrees of motion, I could start turning circles, little tiny circles on the left (laughs) side, big circles on the right side, and then kept lengthening that crank. Uh And I think that movement, that really early movement after the surgery completely changed the trajectory of how I was healing. Hmm. And so every time I would go in for rehab or a checkup, I was way ahead of what I was to the point where Hmm. I I still wasn't weight bearing, but I remember this pretty vividly. I was at the point where I could, I could stand on the bike and I could definitely pedal hard seated. And I was so tired of riding inside. Mm -hmm. And, uh, So I decided I'm going to ride outside. Mary held me up in the driveway as I clicked in and I rolled out and rolled around the street a couple of times. I'm like, I'll be back in an hour. I'll (laughs) yell when I come back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Came back and she got me off the bike. And so that path continued. Yeah. And, um, just on the most fortunate recovery trajectory you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And I got back and I, Two weeks before those next two World Cups, I was able to do some local races. Yeah. It went really well. Um, I did those two World Cup races and was in the top 20, just barely. But I was the first American amongst the qualifiers. Mm-hmm. And I made that Olympic team. Wow. Um, and, you know, the experience, you can relate to it. Like going from professional cycling and thinking that that's a big deal on a big international sport into the Olympic games mm-hmm. and seeing a scale that's different on a quantum level. You're like, wow, now this is really big time. Sport. It's kind of an yeah. overwhelming experience. It is. Um, yeah. and I was a little apathetic about the commercialism of the mm. Olympic games. And I thought that was going to qual- really compromise the personal experience, but having that many athletes from all over the world in the same place. Like, I think like the experience just for me, it it exceeded my expectations. Mm. You know, it's definitely had, there's some commercial aspects, some financial aspect to the Olympics that aren't in the athlete's interest. Right. But like being part of the world coming together Mm -hmm. 
And even though it was criticized, I went to opening ceremonies and I went to closing ceremonies and, mm -hmm. you know, that experience of unity was pretty special. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd had, had a terrible race there, you oh. know, and that was disappointing. Yeah. Um, but the, ex you know, most Olympic athletes have subpar experiences there. The pressure is so high. Right. And you look at, you know, the whole world focuses on the medalists. And that's a couple, like one or 2% of Olympians. Right. So. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the way that went. Yeah. Um, and the, so that experience, you know, it's funny, finally got there, thought it might happen as a runner, <laughs> thought it might happen as a skier. Yeah. Thought it might happen as a mountain bike rider. <laughs> Looked like definitely wasn't going to happen as a mountain bike rider. And, and you know, it happened. So I, I wouldn't change the, you know, the disappointment of the 96 games. Cause I think that really changed how I approach sport and how I changed how I approach life. Um, I'm glad that it didn't exactly replay again for Sydney, but it's like most things in life. The stuff that's the most traumatic has the most potential for yeah. growth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The broken healer is the, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when you're just cruising along, you don't mine out the potential that's there. Mm. So yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. It was, it was a phenomenal experience. That um, we have some interesting parallels in our racing journeys in that respect a little mm -hmm. bit. Only uh, my my run in was a little cleaner. I didn't have the false starts quite so much that you did, or the or the challenges you did with trees and, <laughs> and <laughs> well, trees in both cases, I guess for you. Uh, but I definitely had a similar experience. I mean, I got to the. I remember walking into the the dining hall in Athens the first time and looking and seeing that there was a McDonald's in the dining <laughs> hall of the Olympic cafeteria. And I was just like, what, what the actual F is going on here? Like I had, the, I had cool. identical experience. Yeah. <laughs> like this does not make any sense. I don't understand what's happening. So, um, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, you know, there were, I don't know if it was the same when you were there, but there were countries that were flocking to McDonald's because it was not something that they really had. For sure. The line I, I, rem was I remember the, the Chinese athletes at yeah. the McDonald's booth in the dining hall. Yeah. Like they wanted they to check that out. It was yeah. something unique. Yeah. Yeah. But I also felt that felt that sense of global community and gathering and just there was a very unique energy to the city of Athens when I was there. Um both in the village and outside the village. And that was pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the environment of the athlete village, because it's, because it's people from base, almost every country in the world, right. In the same place mm -hmm. with kind of common ambitions mm -hmm. and common dreams and common lifestyles of sacrifice and effort. Like, yeah. like, I don't know how you describe that other than a sensation of unity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a good adjective. Um, there was a lightness to it in from that respect also, but contrasted with the expectation of performance. And it was hard to enjoy. It was it hard was, for me anyway. Mm. It was hard to kind of bathe in that experience. Yeah. You know, underneath the anxiety of, you know, the race performance anxiety that, you know. Well, a lot of it, I think, comes down to the logistics of the actual event for you, because for me, the timing was perfect. So I got there. I also did opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies, but it worked out well for me because the 
my event was like right in the middle. Uh -huh. So I could do opening ceremonies have a few days to bounce back. I mean, just so people are aware you know, going to, to the ceremony is like a huge commitment as an athlete because <laughs> you're waiting for a bus. You're on a bus. You're, you're loading on buses with hundreds of other athletes. You're driving to the stadium. You're waiting. You're waiting for an hour while they assemble thousands of athletes and do this. And then you're walking out onto the field and you're, you know, raising the flags and doing the thing. And you're part of that whole experience. But by the time it's all said and done, it's like nine hours of standing. Right. When you're, you know, if you had a, a points race or a mountain bike cross country within 24, 48 hours of that event, that's not ideal preparation right? or right. arguably even a week. Uh, this is going to be the biggest race of your whole career, you know, walking around and sweating and not being able to eat for many hours and whatever and dealing with who knows what other challenges. I mean, these are the types of things you think about. So I remember distinctly having a conversation, a long conversation with Bobby Julik about whether he was going to do opening ceremonies. Because the men's road race on the Athens schedule, I think, was two days after. Right. And he really was torn over it. He really wanted to go. But, you know, he's talking to his teammates and they were like, dude, don't do it. You know, this is the Olympics. And ultimately, he did not go to the opening ceremonies. Um, I think it must have been a very similar schedule in Sydney because I remember the road racers being more conflicted yeah. about whether or not to go. And then they were road racers. Like, this was another contrast being a trackie, like, I was like, I'm here at the Olympics. You know, basically they gave you a choice to stay however long you wanted. And my race being, I think I had another week or, or more before closing ceremonies. I was like, why would I go anywhere else? Right. <laughs> I'm going to stay here and go see other events and just ride my road bike around Athens and see cool stuff and go for walks and go see ruins with my family. And we did all that stuff and it was amazing. Um, but the, the roadies were off to go race the next weekend at some you know, I don't know what, I don't remember what event there was, some, right. some classic or something and right. something that their teams had them to do. And I felt bad for them because it was almost like a long weekend in and out for them. And for me, it was like two weeks of, you know, walking around in awe at basketball players and gymnasts. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was another fun game in the dining hall was trying to yes. guess that sport. It's based on like the athlete profile. You can spend a whole day in the dining hall. What do you, what do you think people. that person yeah, does? Right. Like gymnasts and basketball players, they're yes. pretty easy to pick right, out. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, and then there's more normal size looking athletes and then mm. they get harder. Yeah. I also remember having a very distinctive moment. We, I, I'm pretty sure it was on the bus to go to closing ceremony. So they dump you on these buses and you're sitting with, you don't know who and you kind of get on with the cycling team, but then you're mixed with other people. And I sat down next to this, this woman and started speaking to her. And I believe oh, this is 2004. So 16 years ago, I don't remember what team she was on. She was on, she was an American and she was on a team who had won gold medal. It might've been, I won't speculate what it was. Anyway, it's hard to say because there's so many sports in the Olympics that you don't right? see any place else. Like yeah. Modern pentathlon. Um, yep. all of the, the shooting water polo, right? Yeah. Water like, polo. Like yeah. just so many sports, so many teams, so many athletes. It's the scale of the event is really incredible. So I'm sitting next to this woman. And when you go to ceremonies, it's a standard operating procedure. If you win a medal, you take your medal, you wear it. So I look and she's wearing gold medal around her neck. I'm like, Oh, you know, this is great. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And she asked me about my sport and how I did. And, and we're talking and I'm asking her where she's from and stuff. And then after a few minutes, I'm like, you know, can I ask you a favor? She said, yeah. I'm like, can I just hold that medal for a second? I just want to see it. She was like, sure. Took it off, handed it to me. 
And it was such a potent moment because I simultaneously held this gold medal that this, this woman's entire, I don't know how many years of her life and her dreams and her so much effort. And I'm sure blood, sweat and tears had gone into it. And it was such a, a symbol of all that work. And it simultaneously struck me what a powerful symbol it was. And that it also was just a symbol, like holding the medal in my hands. I was like, this really isn't, this is just like all the medals I have hanging on a nail in my garage from local criteriums. Like other than the fact that it says Olympic games on it and that it's probably plated in gold instead of plated in whatever our local criterion medals are plated in goldish stuff. It wasn't any, it wasn't, it didn't have this massive weight. It didn't, I didn't feel electricity going through my hand, fingers, you know, <laughs> I didn't hear music when I touched it. So it was like, okay, this is kind of unimpressive in a way, but at the same time, the significance of the symbol of that metal really impacted me. Um, so that was just a, a sort of an odd juxtaposition. Well, I think duality to that moment. Yeah. I think the Olympics in general, I, I had a similar experience in that, something that you look forward to and have ambitions to for years and years and years. And then it comes and it goes. The, um, the Olympic hangover. Had, yeah. The Olympic hangover. Yeah. I had depression after the Olympics. Yeah. Because it was something that I focused towards for so long. Yeah. Um, without regard to what it really meant, just that that's what I want to do. Um, I think the process for the Atlanta games and that let down and not going there. And like I'd said, it kind of refocused me on process rather than outcomes mm -hmm. helped with that hangover. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely, uh, I think something that a lot of athletes, a lot of Olympic athletes go through is that, all right, here's a point in time. Mm -hmm. I was pre-Olympics now I'm post-Olympics yep. and now, okay, what? now what, like right. I'm still the same person. Mm -hmm. Um, this feels kind of weird, but there's no Olympics to shoot. I mean, I was speaking about this in my recent podcast with Jesse Stensland, and we were talking about how in the one sense, being an elite athlete is such a simple life because, you know, you get up every day and you've got that Olympics or the next world cup or the next world championships. And it gets you out of bed, even when it's gray and cloudy and cold and, or you don't feel so great or whatever. And you, you, it structures your day. It gives you that, it gives you that end point to focus on. Yeah. And on, in one sense, that simplifies your life. It makes things so directed. It makes things so orchestrated because all the pieces are towards that single end. On the other hand, there's almost a sense of, of burden because unless you're constantly making progress towards that goal, you have you get the, the dark side of that, the shadow side is that you start to feel like you're falling behind. So there's the, always this pressure to go. There's always... The throttle is always on to some degree. It's just a question of how how throttled it is mm -hmm. at any given day or any moment, whether you're doing intervals or whether you're recovering or whether you're working on some project or managing the rest of your life so that it can still you can still focus on that goal. And then, of course, once you do go to the Olympics or the World Championships or whatever it is, or maybe it's your state championships, there's that post, there's there's after, right? And life becomes more there are different goals and different priorities and how do you weigh those and those subtle interactions between, well, how do I evaluate the, the priority of me wanting to go for a nice bike ride versus spend time with my grandma this afternoon <laughs> or do that lawn yard work that's been wanting to be done for a while or do my taxes, which feels yucky, but <laughs> has to be done. <laughs> and 
life becomes more nuanced and subtle and, and, and just so not elite athlete. I mean, that's part of the magic of the Olympics is you feel like a rock star because you're there and you're like, I did it. I made it to this cool platform and there are all these amazing athletes around me. And, and I feel like, um, it's just a very special place. And then that ends and it's back to reality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I agreed. I think that's, um, that's a challenge for athletes and it, but it's all about perspective. Right. And that's, you know, that's something with sport, um, or anything, I guess that you invest in that deeply in focus. Like there's a monastic aspect of that yes. lifestyle Yeah, and there's two sides to the, that coin. Yep. Um, yep. and I look back on, and simplicity that, you know, the word you used is something that I relish most about that period in my life is mm -hmm. that you are justified in being kind of self-absorbed and looking out for just a few number of things. Right. And the simplicity of that life, there was definitely mm. something special mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. But. Comes at a price. Yeah, it comes at a price. Yeah. It comes at a price. Um, and, I, you know, you get to the point, you know, whether it's a champ, whatever championship race or a peak race or whatever it is, mm. that those moments, you know, the energy at the Olympics is great or the energy at a peak race for any athlete, um, is great, but it's still a moment in time. And if you're not deriving some satisfaction from the process of getting there and the process afterwards, mm -hmm. then 99% of your life is not, you're not getting satisfaction from 99% of your life. If it has to be those moments, you're kind of hosed. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, you know, it's, it's like you save up your money to buy something, some object for years and years, and you're convinced that when you buy that object, it's going to make you, you know, happy. It's mm -hmm. going to fulfill your life. It's going to, it's going to make you a different person somehow. And of course that's not true. And you could apply that same logic to making the Olympic team or attending the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To be a truly an athlete that's truly in balance, I think you need to to enjoy the practice of being an athlete. Right. And that's something it took me many years to learn. Well, and I'm sure as a coach, you probably see that a lot. You know, there are people who are cyclists because they love it. And there are people who are cyclists because they think that's what's expected of them, or that's what their spouse or their family thought was important or their peer group thought is important and they don't mm -hmm. enjoy it. And they may have yeah. a ton of talent and be experiencing success but it's the wrong sport for those people. Right. Right. You, know, you need to be doing something that you enjoy so yeah. that, so that you yeah. can be pulling satisfaction and peace of mind. Yeah. Searching for that external validation through the sport all the time without harvesting your own joy from it is going to be not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I ride, it's part of my life is, bike riding, particularly mountain biking. I mm -hmm. think the machine of the bicycle is maybe one of the best inventions of humanity. Mm. Um, you know, that sensation of freedom of getting from A to B on your own power that, yep. like most people experienced as a young kid, yep. you know, is still pretty magical. Um, you know, we've talked about doing, you know, bike packing tours, you know, that, you know, bike packing on the car at a trail is part of my medicine you know, and my recreation. And also I'm in a fortunate position that it, I can justify it as some product development time too. Yeah. 
So, yeah. um, you know, the recipe of cycling in my life fits pretty well. Yeah. Just yesterday, I think you used a term you said, I think you said high Alpine medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. so true. I mean, you know, living here in Colorado, we, we have, we're so blessed to have access to, to that, but it's, there's something magic about the air and the energy of the planet when yeah. you get above tree line. It's yeah. just high like, country prana. That's the term you used. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. High country prana. <laughs> yeah. It's special. It really, it really is. is. Yeah. 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 Once you get a taste of it. <laughs> so tires, Travis, you've done some cool, you've got, you've been, been given some good freedom at Trek to play with neat stuff. Right. Yeah, for sure. I have a lot of freedom to kind of chase inquiries like product inquiries and mm -hmm. suspicions and stuff and see where there might be an opportunity for a unique product or a superior performing product. Mm -hmm. Um, we do lots and lots of frame geometry prototypes, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, wheels are probably the most important component of a road bike or a mountain bike. Um, and so we've done some experimentation there and, you know, some of that manifest in like the stash bike that you were talking about and that you ride, which is a 29 by three inch tire. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of a niche product, but that was pretty fun R and D exercise that required unique frames and unique forks and mm -hmm. unique rims and tires to execute that. We have, um, kind of continued to experiment, uh, with different tire volumes and tire diameters. And when I moved into the product development department, we were still running, um, both the Fisher and the Trek brand right in the mountain bike segment. And Fisher brand was our 29 inch wheel brand. And so I started doing some work in comparative wheel sizes at that point, which was either 26 or 29, where now it's pretty much 27, five or 29. Yeah. Um, I know in, in the pandemic and people dusting off all kinds of bikes right now, they're having trouble finding 26 inch tires <laughs> right? because, you know, with things switching to the better small wheel size is 27.5. Um, a lot of manufacturers stopped stocking 26 inch tires. Right. And a lot of those bikes were sitting in garages for a long time until yep. 2020. Now and they got dusted off and, yeah. and they need new tires. Yeah. <laughs> but that comparative wheel size is kind of part of the Trek personality because we had those two brands. And honestly, the Fisher brand, the 29-inch wheel platform for the Fisher brand was kind of on the chopping block for 10 years. Hmm. Um, you know, it just wasn't taking off to the degree that we expected or we thought was appropriate for its performance parameters so was fish fisher was the original one of the first 29er platforms and you truck acquired fisher and then brought it on but it just didn't quite ignite is that that's pretty yeah that's pretty accurate so yeah okay. fisher was one of the original mountain bike brands yeah um along with specialized and um you know a few other small manufacturers and it was a part it was a point in the industry where accessing other niches uh within mountain biking made sense for trek which was known as a road brand to acquire some mountain bike brands okay it was kind of a i don't know if this is a great analogy the the gm model of the bike industry so 
one company had several brands that had different niches. Right. So we had, uh, you know, Le Mans bikes, a licensing agreement for Le Mans. We produced yep. cross bikes and road bikes. Um, we own the Klein brand. We purchased the Klein brand. Mm -hmm. uh, we purchased the Bontrager brand, which is originally a frame brand, but then manifest into our component brand. Right. Um, but now, uh, as we kind of had more shared technology and brand equity, um, the effort of maintaining all those brands independently was, was overwhelming. Mm. And during that period of... Fisher being this mountain bike brand that was 29 focused and it struggled to get wide acceptance because one of those things we talked about earlier, you know, there's some entrenchment and resistance to yep. good ideas, yep. even if they're good. Good. Um, and then right about the point where we decide to roll Fisher into the Trek mountain bike group as the Fisher collection by Trek was about the time Europe decided changed their mind from 29ers are really dumb to 29ers are the best thing ever. <laughs> and so it was kind of the end, the, the, you know, the path had already been set for the end of Fisher as its independent brand. Uh -huh. Um, but it was kind of the beginning of the real boom of 29 inch wheels. Mm -hmm. And so 29 inch sales took off at that point. And what year was this? This would have been, in early 2000s yeah like maybe around 2003 2004 is when this was going on okay and um you know finally at that point there was tire options 29 inch tire options that were comparable to 26 yeah. quality enough different tread varieties enough for different, different tread conditions. varieties enough rims good forks um yeah and so there was better apples to apples comparison Mm -hmm. Um, you know, anything that's kind of groundbreaking, the few first few prototypes, first few iterations are myopic in a sense is that they're, you know, if you only have one tire, it's really good for one condition. You think about that. Um, right. you don't have all the choices. It's going to be a deterrent to switching to a new platform. Yep. But that, so that's part of the Trek legacy is a really good, I think, intellectual understanding of different diameters and different tire volumes and mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. And so we did during that time when we had Trek as a 29 inch platform and uh, Trek as a 26 inch platform and Fisher as a 29 inch platform, but 29 was growing and we wanted some of those characteristics without cannibalizing sales. Cause we had a lot of dealers that had, that were both Trek and Fisher dealers. Mm -hmm. That's when that mixed wheel platform project of the six niner came out because yep. it had a lot of the steering stability of the 29 without it being a full 29. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was really mostly what was the end of that project is that we, oh, almost overnight in one season, we didn't have that issue of it being a specialty category for 29 and mm -hmm. we didn't have two separate band brands to maintain. So even though there are some unique to 26, unique to 29 um, performance characteristics of a mixed wheel platform, yep. we didn't need that um, elegant solution to having some 29-inch character in the Trek line different right. from the 29-inch bikes in the Fisher in line. In the Fisher line, yeah. That's interesting. I remember that was about the time that I was doing the Breck Epic stage race with you and yeah, and uh, 
Jeremiah Bishop and I was riding on Cannondale at that point, and we were on the first scalpel frames, and those frames were very twitchy in the front end. Yeah. And Jeremiah proposed proposed a solution for me. He's like, "Well, you can just put a 650B front wheel, right? Like, you just need a lefty hub because it had a lefty suspension fork with one arm, and and you can build. You just find a 650B rim and build up the wheel, and then effectively you're making. I mean, I don't know if it if a bike with a 29 inch front wheel and a 26 rear wheels of a 69er. I don't know what my bike yeah. was called. It was like a 650 B sixer. <laughs> right. But, but that mixed platform and you tried that. And I, worked great, I raced right? it for three or four seasons yeah. and it, and it calmed down the handling of the scalpel, made it more stable on descents more. I, I there was really seemingly no downside. It just helped the bike handle better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Candale eventually re reworked the geometry of that bike and made it a dual 29er and changed the suspension and relaxed the geometry and it became more progressive. But I don't remember what the head angle was on the original scalpel, but it was, it was a twitchy bike, a twitchy bike for sure. Yeah. So well, all and all, when we go back now and ride 26 inch wheel bikes, they yeah, all feel, twitchy. they all feel like a cat on cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other interesting point on that is so racing on the track, the vast, vast majority of all racers, of course, race 700 C and track is a world where, you know, the skinny tire, even to this day, still somewhat remains uh, a thing. Like, I mean, when I was racing in the mid to late nineties on the road for Shackley and Carter cyclist, I was racing on 19 millimeter tubular tires was very right. common or 21 millimeter tu- tubular tires. And I was pumping them up to no joke, 125 or 130 PSI right? <laughs> and racing criteriums on that. And somehow most of the time I managed to not die or fall down. And I was convinced at the time I had an instinct that that was the fastest PSI for me. Now, whether or not that's true or not, who knows? Well, I think it would I'll, depend on the terrain. It, the could, terrain, it could be the surface. a really smooth surface. And I, I, also, I also honestly believe that riding style plays into it. Um, I think there were certain dynamics of being in a Peloton that played out to me leading to that conclusion. And some of them were like, consider that I'm about 62 kilograms, 140, 145 pounds, depending on what time of year and what season we're talking about. So I'm missing about 20, 30 pounds of muscle compared to the average rider in a U.S. Peloton or an international Peloton. And when you have a lot of corners through every long corner, I'm even if I enter the corner with the same speed, I just don't carry as much inertia. So I'm losing, sometimes I lose a bike length in long corners on guys who weighed 20 pounds more than me. Right. So one of the sacrifices I made was, oh, I run higher PSI, but that requires me to be a better bike handler. Right. In a little scenario. less grip. A little less grip. So I've got to really have my act together. So necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I, I feel like some of my road cornering skills were forced to be at a higher level because I was dealing with some other we'll say. And also I didn't have as big, as many horses. I wasn't an especially powerful rider, you know, but here I am racing. So you got to figure out a way to solve the equation. This is what's cool about athletics. And this is one of the reasons I think that the expression Watts is Watts just annoys the crap out of me because (laughs) there's so many other ways to skin a cat. Especially, Um, yeah, especially road cycling. Yeah. Because the aerodynamic component and the Peloton, the yeah. play of the Peloton and yeah. how you use your power and when you use it in a race and all those little nuances, right. That are yeah. unquantifiable. The other extreme example, which went backwards is I was teammates with uh, Jamie Carney for a long time. And Jamie actually rode 650 B wheels on his track bike. And his rationale was that if he had a smaller front wheel, he could draft more closely to the rider in front of him, right. giving him a benefit, a recovery benefit. Um, 
And that only, but the entire premise of that wheel size being an advantage was based on three things or well, two, two ideas and one challenge. The challenge was getting tires, <laughs> just as you said. He could find 650B tires because of course, for many years before the UCI outlawed it, there were time trial and track bikes that had different size wheels. And usually the smaller wheel was the front wheel backwards and to the, a mountain bike, right? And at that point they were using even some smaller wheels than Yeah, oh yeah, there were 24s in the front yeah. for some of the bikes, yeah. Especially for the Project 96 bikes, I think they had 24s in the front if I remember correctly. And so then you've got these crazy tires, right? And those are all 18 millimeter tires, of course. So Jamie had to get tires. That was his challenge. And most of the time he managed to pull that off and get acceptable quality. You know, you got to have a pretty nice tire to go fast on a velodrome at a world, at the world level. He's racing world cups and world championships and pan and games and the like. Um, but the other interesting part is his advantage is only processed on the fact that I don't know if that's a word. It's, it's framed by the, the fact that everyone else in the points race or Madison or a scratch race, whatever event he's competing in is using standard size wheels because the, the advantage is that he's using a different size than everyone else on the track. Right. Right. Um, it's also based on the idea that riders have a certain reflexive habit on where they'll draft off of someone. Like when you're in a pace line as an experienced rider, you learn how far away you can be from someone, but it's not because you're staring at the yeah. distance between your wheels. It's based on your sense of space between their butt and their, frame and their hub and their all those parts together and since jamie's rear wheel is a smaller diameter if people actually paid attention they realized they could actually draft much closer to him too because he wasn't he wasn't riding a mixed wheel platform. correct it was 650b yeah. front and rear so assuming people didn't figure that out which probably most of the time they don't because you don't you're in a points race you just behave as though jamie were riding the same wheels as everyone else yeah. you're not going to notice that when you're racing behind him probably so Anyway, it was an interesting idea. He used it for a number of years. I don't know. So do you, do you think there's an argument for a, a track bike with just really long chain stays <laughs> to keep people from getting Keep people close? from drafting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because chain stay length on a track bike probably wouldn't impact handling the way it would in any other discipline because, of course, you know, when the when front center, rear center, bottom bracket drop and chain stay or chain state length impact handling the most is when you're coasting and driving the bike through a corner, whether that's on uneven loose terrain on a mountain bike or through a berm or on a road descent, you know, coast on a track bike. If, you, if you're coasting on a track bike, something went really wrong. So maybe, yeah. maybe there is, I don't know. It's a good if idea. The, if there weren't like with your experience and wheel size and mm. such a unique application, um, if there weren't the UCI restrictions on wheel diameter, do you right. think there would be, what do you think the diameters would be used? The ideal wheel yeah. for track? Because I know for a while there were, I, from reading history, there were some track records set with really small disc and wheels. And also huge. Remember Mosier's bike? Right, right. Yeah, he had that massive rear disc made when mm -hmm. he set the hour record at one point. And he had a, I don't recall if he had a smaller front wheel than a 700C, if it was a standard diameter. I'd have to look that up to be honest, but... I remember the rear wheel being massive. I mean, if I recall correctly, it had a split seat tube because it went yeah, you know, yeah. so far forward over the BB. Um, but I think I recall um, like team time trial records. Oh, yeah. With really small wheels. Oh, For yeah, exactly absolutely. what you're talking about. It allowed the riders mm -hmm. to be closer to each other in the draft. Um, I think some of it was also that before aero bars were a thing, 
people had their the idea that they wanted a bullhorn bar, which was more arrow than a drop bar, and they wanted that bullhorn bar to be very, very low. And that required that necessitated a very short head tube. And for uh-huh. a rider who was less than, we'll say, my height, five nine, you would need a, a smaller front wheel was might be the only way to get that down there because in the day of quill stems, you didn't have negative thirty degree stems. The, right. Those things didn't people weren't solving the equation that way. And I also think they thought, well, a smaller wheel is a more arrow wheel because it breaks less wind. They weren't really probably accounting for the fact that in, uh, breaking the wind through a wheel, which is basically a controllable shape, you know, a manipulable shape is probably more ideal. You might be able to part the wind around the rider using a lenticular disc, for example, might be more efficient than using uh, a smaller flatter disc or whatever. So I think it's, you know, only in the last 10 or 15 years, I'd say, have people on the whole start to think of the aerodynamic rider, bike, wheel combination as a unit as a package we used to do things like put a fork in a wind tunnel and say how aero is this fork right, right. now we realize that's you gotta kind evaluate of the whole system it's all about context yeah it's about the airflow between the wheel and the fork blades and the foot behind the wheel and how the negative pressure influences the air and all those bits and pieces yeah, i find that really curious and interesting for, you know especially when we start talking about wheel diameter mm-hmm. um you know in my limited understanding of fluid dynamics and aerodynamics, mm. you know, there seems to be some situation, situational arguments for smaller on those smooth, you know, on, like on the track. Right. Whereas on the mountain bike, we're always talking about something bigger. Always. Yeah. So, well, that's a great point. I mean, okay, let's think about it this way. If we look at the fact that most International standard velodromes are all 250 meters long and they're wood and they're indoor now. Finally, you see, I made that call and about, well, I should say finally make myself sound old. I think that was in 2005 or something. They said all international competitions have to be held on an indoor velodrome. Okay, that was a good call. But 250 meter velodromes, basically the geometry, there's no real standard other than the fact that on the black line, the velodrome needs to be certified to be 250 meters in length. There's no standard for the banking the geometry of the transitions, the width of the track, there's a minimum, but there's no maximum. So some tracks are a certain width on the straights and then they get wider in the corners, mm-hmm. whereas other velodromes are a constant width all the way around. And that has subtle but non-trivial impacts on the way racing plays out. Sure. Um, mass start racing or timed events as well, depending on which discipline you're talking about. But fundamentally, these tracks were designed with one event in mind as my historical velodrome geometry architecture understands it, which is basically for a team pursuit. And the idea behind the design of a velodrome is pretty simple. When you've got a four rider team pursuit, when the lead rider pulls off and goes high, the other three riders go underneath and the fourth rider should be able to do a smooth, clean transitional arc without losing speed and drop into the fourth position so they drop off at the entrance to the turn and return to the to the team at the exit of the turn. And the, the geometry of the track and the transitions um, from the angle of the straight to the tor- to the corners is basically designed with that process in mind. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about what's interesting too is that team pursuit teams, the, the speeds have gone up so much, especially in the last about five years. The times have just been dropping and dropping and dropping. So now riders are riding at higher velocities than those tracks were theoretically designed for. <laughs> they're still making it work, but it makes you wonder when they're when we might hit some sort of limit. I don't know. I don't know. And, what that limit and will have be. to build a bigger track. 
I don't know if the track would be bigger necessarily. I don't think people would want a bigger track because that changes the stadium footprint and there's all these implications as far as building size and how many people you can get in there and all that other stuff. But, and also a lot of world record times are based on numbers of laps. Oh, right. Yeah. But you have to have some standardization. Yeah. For the yeah. Yeah. So books. for an indoor sport, but I don't know, probably I would guess that then with higher speed, you'd need steeper bankings, right? Higher speed, bigger lean angle. Yeah. You need bigger banking. So there's a point when the riders are going to be going, steering up track. And then at the top of an exchange, when their angle changes from acute relative to the banking of the velodrome to obtuse and they start to turn back down if their speed is great enough in theory i mean you'd have to there's no way they're going to clip a pedal but i don't know what they might just lose traction and start to slide and become unsafe that would be the issue but you don't I guess. you don't think that the like a team pursuit would pursue smaller wheeled bikes if they had the freedom to do that well they do now they in theory they do because the UCI regulations are that the wheels, there's limits on the small size and the large size of the wheel, but the only other stipulation is front wheel, front and rear wheel diameters have to be the same. Right. So they could be using dual 24s if they thought it was advantageous. Um, I think the perception is that there's a trade-off in smaller wheels with rolling resistance, which I'm sure you would agree with. So it seems like 700C is just sort of the default settled on spot, whether it's optimal that's a great question. I think. Yeah, it's, I, wouldn't I don't it know. Is. I, I, pres, you know, in my experience in off-road testing, you know, there are still some surfaces where 26 inch wheel bike is faster, faster, but it has to be really smooth and really good traction. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and hard braking to a stop and, a, and accelerations, you know, and that almost never manifests in a, in in a real an average yeah. cross country course. Right. But if you if you took those out, um, I was just curious. Yeah. There were advantages. Um, the, the UCI actually projected that mixed wheel ban onto mountain bikes for quite some time, mm-hmm. and made that six niner bike and the mixed wheel platform bikes illegal tech from a technical standpoint. Right. But it was at a time when Jeremiah, you know, was riding his Cannondale that way, and a handful of other people were riding mixed wheel bikes that way because they weren't they weren't enforcing it oh um but so then, then oh. but then like you know like not allowing disc brakes and cross they've abandoned that arbitrary rule uh-huh. which is allowed for a little bit more development i forgot about that there still are there still are cross. some overall diameter limitations i think mm-hmm. um which is relevant from the product development standpoint in some cases if you want your world cup riders to ride them yeah. Um, but there's a path for kind of creating that new opportunity in the mountain bike category with appeals with the UCI Technical Commission. Uh-huh. I might own ideas about the relevance of the Technical <laughs> Commission, but um, um, yeah, there are some pathways if that was something that someone really wanted to pursue. But but the other thing is that you you almost sell no bikes to people that are doing UCI. UCI races. So right. there's the, everyone you sell a bike to isn't competing in those. So is it relevant to have it UCI compliant in mountain bikes? I'm not sure it is. Isn't that such an interesting paradox for manufacturers? Like you have your elite athletes who are, who everyone's watching and right. looking at and seeing on the news and, and you want 
ostensibly you want to use those athletes that you sponsor as your salespeople, your ultimate salespeople. Yeah, they're how one of your... this bike is, but the regulations those athletes are subject to in competition do not apply to 99% of your consumer base. Right. So it doesn't make that much sense. So then you end up with the weekend warrior who can build a, an eight pound road bike with a right. two German componentry. And it's half the weight of what, you know, a rider who's making their living riding at the Tour de France is riding right, on. It right. doesn't make sense. It's happened a little bit with that road bike weight limit where it's allowed other technologies to be explored of like That's people true. aren't as resistant to putting power meters on, you know, because they're true. still at, at a certain larger tires experiment with that. Because the bike's going to be a limit anyway. Yeah, loosening yeah. their minds to some of those things, but mm -hmm. it hasn't gone that far. Mm -hmm. It hasn't gone to different wheel sizes anyway. Right. That would be so challenging in road cycling because, of course, then you've got the whole flat tires right. and right. getting the well, right mechanic. And we we bridge yeah. that challenge with disc wheels. You know, we have um, with a lot of discussion and resistance. Right. And right. Dramatic videos. <laughs> right. People slicing pieces of meat on rotors and stuff, right. like literally dropping steak on top of rotors. To right. But, you know, <laughs> the, the funny thing about that whole part of the argument against disc brakes on road bikes was that no one ever showed all of the injuries from chain rings. Right. Right. I mean, there were more, even more injuries from chain rings, from big chain rings when you had a crash and you were in your small chain ring and you yeah. had those teeth exposed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, it's the same path of argument you would use to say, oh, everyone has to use a one by for safety. Right. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got to say, disc brakes are just, the technology is inarguably superior. Yeah. Inarguably superior. I mean, well, and it's part of partially covering the ergonomic compromise of, of the levers that we had talked yes. about before. Yeah. You know? You, you know, with a rim brake on the hoods, cyclocross or wet road riding or whatever, you got a four finger death grip right. in order to get the braking power you need to slow down. So disc brakes have eliminated some of that yeah. finger force. Yes, for sure. For sure. Massive improvement in safety that way. Yeah. And that's assuming, you know, for you and I, who ostensibly we have healthy hands and strong fingers, but not everyone's in that position. I mean, I yeah. have clients who have, you know, battling wrist injuries or other challenges where they just don't have the grip strength to, to handle that. And for them, electronic shifting and disc brakes is, you know, it's just a matter of game changer, game changer in terms yeah. of safety and convenience and ability to ride their bike and enjoy cycling and still feel like they're not about to, to uh, have their hands slip off the bars or, or be able to control the bike under braking load, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. But so you've played with some really big tire sizes. Tell us about some of your cool prototypes and some things you've had, had made in the world of uh, monster tires. Yeah, well, yeah, within that kind of curiosity and inquiry of things that could potentially provide a performance advantage, um, I've done what I can to experiment with wheels that are larger than 29, mm -hmm. and that's part of this overall inquiry into mixed wheel platforms and, like, what tires actually do the performance on a bike on a given terrain. Right. And so there are a few larger diameters um, and tires available and they're usually created for, um, the unicycle industry because mm. on unicycle has its own endurance, um, kind of sub-discipline people who do endurance 
unicycle races. And like <laughs> a high wheeler, like a penny farthing, yeah. your gear is dictated by the size of the wheel. On the wheel, so you want so a pretty big wheel. They're do, they want the biggest wheel that they can basically stand on and uh -huh. pedal. Uh -huh. And so there are both 32-inch and 36-inch tires and rims available that we can build into mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. And the quality of the tires and the rims is pretty low. And so mm -hmm. you get some of the impression of what it would be like as a race product or as a refined trail bike product, but then you still have to extrapolate yeah. quite a bit. It's offset um, by the lower quality of the casing or low quality casing. I mean, basically that's a, it's a wire bead. Yeah. 30 TPI two ply casing. Yeah. So yeah. it's almost twice as heavy mm -hmm. as a Kevlar bead, mm -hmm. 120 TPI single ply casing. Right. So that's a big penalty, yeah. especially on a 36 inch wheel. <laughs> so if you're going to do comparisons and have some objective metrics for comparison, you have to find really crappy tires for a 29 inch wheel bike and then do the comparison that way. <laughs> and that's surprisingly hard to find an identical low quality tire for a 29 inch wheel bike. Right. Right. Um, but we've done some of that. And from what I can tell, there definitely are opportunities for faster wheels and larger diameters mm -hmm. on rough terrains right. or on slick terrains. Oh. Um, it feels the same way it did when we were doing all this comparison of 26 and 29. Mm -hmm. It feels slower. Uh -huh. But when you start to put a time on it and as the terrain gets looser, or rougher or slicker, they're almost always faster. Interesting. Um, now we, the next stage is to scale that to a high quality tire yeah. and prove like in the best case pro level components, mm -hmm. this is actually faster and right. it's faster on these terrains and it's slower on these terrains. And we'll probably have a break point of that. Yep. I would suspect it's similar to what it is mm -hmm. currently between 26 and 29, mm -hmm. you know? a larger wheel is going to be heavier and it's yep. going to be less stiff. Yeah. Um, but heavier you know, only so the, really penalizes you during accelerations. Um, or really steep climbing. Cause that's basically an acceleration, acceleration on every yeah, pedal, pedal stroke. stroke. Right. Um, however, that one thing, and we've learned this in the 29 to 26 and 29 to 27, five comparison is that the maintenance of that inertia through the dead part of your yep. stroke yep. or the maintenance of that inertia through a corner mm -hmm. is an advantage that you don't feel yes. as the motor, right? You always feel the resistance of the inertia when you push on the pedals, mm -hmm. but we're not real. We're not nearly as good uh, as test riders at feeling, feeling the maintenance in those, those dead spots oh, or so when you, when you can't pedal. Yeah. So I have this conversation in my fit studio all the time with people who are about how, I mean, cycling's got a bad rap in some respects because it it's a sport for all the endurance sports. I think cycling is the one that allows the crappiest technique. Like <laughs> if you're a bad cross-country skate skier, if you're really bad, you, you can't skate. You'll fall over. Like it's so balance intensive. Are you, you saying because of the inertia stability of the wheels? I'm saying, or? Yeah, well, yes. In the, or also the inertial stability of a trainer with a really heavy flywheel. Uh -huh. So we have all these people been riding indoors and doing Zwift and they'll they go outside and they don't know why they, their technique is so bad or their back hurts or their knee hurts or their leg hurts. It's like trainer syndrome. And I have to explain to them like, okay, a trainer camouflages dead spots. 
because that big heavy flywheel, once you get it going, you can just jab at the pedals right. and really be pretty atrocious. At, you're not smoothing your pedal stroke. You're not really developing or making power with a supple muscle at all. You're just kind of punching at the thing, just jabbing, jabbing. And you're, and also your position can be way out of whack. Your saddle can be way too far forward or way high or way low or whatever. And the inertia will kind of camouflage that to a degree, right? It's like that big heavy flywheel. Once you get it going, it coasts you through the dead spots. Also similar to a fixed gear on the track, right? A fixed gear camouflages dead spots to a degree. The weird juxtaposition is that if you ride a fixed gear bike on the road, you also have to pedal at very high cadences if you go down a hill. Mm -hmm. So that does force the development of supple muscle. But anytime you're making power with a fixed gear, you can have a pretty crappy dead spot and the, the wheel will drive you through that dead spot. The same thing is true for people who live in f really flat terrain places. Like if you live in Florida, you can ride with a pretty lousy pedal stroke, to be honest, and not necessarily figure it out because flat riding camouflages dead spots. As soon as you get the bike and the rider up to speed, you can be pretty sloppy. But the inverse of that is riding a mountain bike up a really steep, loose climb. You've got to, if your dead spot's really big, or if you're the difference between your your low point of power and your high point of, of I should say, torque actually in the stroke is too, there's too much differential. Then when you hit the torque at three o'clock or four o'clock, you'll break traction. Right. So you have to smooth your pedal stroke. You've got to put a little power in during the dead spot at least, and you can't be too snappy at the high point. Right. right. So I, I remember being a little surprised by that pedaling dynamic per discipline um, data when you know, we started doing some training for the Olympics at the training center and working with the biomechanists there. And that was Jeff Broker, I think. I don't right. Remember. And he produced a graph and they talked about it and the mountain bikers had the smoothest strokes. This is what you're Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. we we thought we were already the redheaded stepchilds of cycling, right? You know, <laughs> the, the new kids to the party. Right. And somewhat, you know, kind of the Neanderthals of mm -hmm. of of cycling. And we thought those, you know, biomechanics mechanistic analysis that we were going to be terrible and it was exactly for that reason is that you develop a good power you know a round stroke to keep traction yep and it was the the track riders at high rpms yep. and the mountain bike Bikers, riders yep. that had the smoothest strokes mm -hmm. and the other thing that was interesting about the track riders is that their low rpm pedaling was Correct. not efficient that's exactly yeah. why it's because <laughs> the the fixed gear can make bad habits huh yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, what I love about that whole that whole study and that those pieces of data is that it reminds us how the athlete solves the equation, right? And the human body figures it out instinctively. We just figure it out. We right. figure things out as athletes, like the adaptability. You you just you just start to learn. Like this doesn't work for me. Oh, this does work for me. How do I make power going up this steep climb? And you just the nervous system figures it out, right? Without necessarily consciously applying things, right? So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we got to give our bodies, our bodies more credit for mm -hmm. sorting things. Mm -hmm. But we're we're in this world of reductionism and analysis and being able to yep. have metrics that explain it very clearly. Mm -hmm. And it's always some kind of stretch. If you're really tacking it down in your explanation, <laughs> you're making some big leaps in there. I think most times. Yeah, yeah. Because there's always so so many so much more analysis that could be done that can't be done. Right balance in all things right <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. so good um thank you for the the the, the journey down uh wheel dorkedness i appreciate that <laughs> um 
there's one other topic I wanted to bring up if, if you're okay with it. And that is, I know you've had some, some health challenges recently and specifically you had a brush with melanoma, correct? Yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, um, 2017, I think, you know, I was in for my annual, um, dermatologist screen and, um, I'd actually had a spot on my arm on the top of my forearm that I'd been aware of for a long time and had been asking the dermatologist about for Mm -hmm. a long time. And I don't know if I, I saw it change extra, but I went in like at six months, I think six or eight months. So ahead of my annual checkup. And I said, I want you to look at this one again. And I don't know if it was because of what I said, but they biopsied it and it was a malignant melanoma. Mm. And so having, you know, knowing the behavior of melanoma, you know, when I was in CU, had a biology of the cancer cell class Uh and knowing that I had, it had been there for at least 10 years, that was pretty scary. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it kind of reprioritized life and mortality and a lot of things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I, you know, we didn't know that's kind of a cancer skin cancer generally is very easily curable. Mm. Um, as if long you as you get it, it yeah. you catch it early and melanoma yeah. in particular, it's kind of either surgery and no metastasis or surgery, tons of metastasis. It's over. Right. Fortunately for me, it was yeah. the former. Right. And, uh, but I had a couple months to think about it before the biopsies of the surgery came back. Mm. Um, and that was a good kind of recalibration of life. Yeah. Um, definitely have had a lot of hours at high altitude with my arms exposed, right? Like at the perfect angle to just absorb as much sun as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm pretty much only long sleeves now, much more cognizant about um, protection mm-hmm. from sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little late for the long-term damage. Mm-hmm. And I think lots of people kind of realize that late. Um, but you know, um, yeah. you know, dodge that bullet. My body still produced the conditions for that. So, uh, I'm extra careful now because okay. I still being outside is still priority important medicine too. Yeah. Yeah. And are you using sunscreen at all or you use more mechanical sun? Mostly covering devices? just because of the chemicals in sunscreen. You know, right. if, if you're outside in the sun every day and you're putting sunscreen on every day, I think there's some fair question about the health effects of that. Yeah. So I have a lot of really cool looking brims on my cycling helmets and sunshades <laughs> on my cycling helmets. Yeah. Tongue in cheek, obviously. <laughs> um, and I, I wear long sleeves and yeah. warmers most of the time yeah. or sunshades on my legs. Like for those long tours, I wear full leg warmers and full right. arms right. all, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when so you're, when you're in the high country, the heat usually isn't too much of an issue, but Right. And, and I think, uh, I don't know if I'm adapting to it or just accept it's the way it is, you know, a really thin, um, sun covering for your arms, if it's white can be cooler, Mm -hmm. you know, you reflect a lot of thermal energy that way. And even though you have an additional layer there, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be when I'm like, all right, I'm committed to pretty much covering up on all rides now. Right. Right. So, um, very fortunate outcome for that yeah and uh changed my practice of being outside Mm. um 
you know, I have a 16 year old daughter right. who likes to get a tan. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I probably remind her more than she thinks is enough that, you know, I, th I think I just read some study that as few as five peeling sunburns before age 20 mm -hmm. doubles your risk of skin cancer. Interesting. So it's when those, you know, those, those epithelial cells are formative, you know, yep. that the damage manifests long-term. Yeah. So sunburns yep. for young people are the most damaging. Ah, yeah. And, and there's gotta be balance in all that, right? I mean, I assume that some people probably just develop more of a natural sun callus uh, or naturally develop a sun a callus, we'll say. Yeah. Know, yeah. And it's tans and melanin to, production. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, doing that gradually from my understanding now through, mm -hmm. through this experience is that a little bit of sun to start to get a tan. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of health benefits, obviously vitamin D yes. we're starting to realize how fundamentally that important that is mm -hmm. to, to our health and our immune systems. Right. Um, but the difference between very gradually getting a yep. tan yep. and burning the shit out of yourself <laughs> yeah. and having, yeah. a, you know, th yeah. those are pretty those different. Are the key. Yeah. I remember falling asleep in the sun when I was a young boy and just getting absolutely scorched. So that was, I definitely had, I probably had more than five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the amount of time that somehow you can spend riding without injury, right? Like it's part of the magic of cycling. Mm -hmm. You know, you're out, your arms are there at, in a perfect at solar the, panel at the, at the angle. Yeah. Especially here in Colorado because yeah. it's so sunny here. But yeah. what's odd about cycling is that I feel like I think in the summer, clearly we get, probably most cyclists do pretty well on vitamin D and sun exposure just through forearm exposure. But when you add up the number of hours of uh, like where the angle is pretty obtuse, um, in the fall or in the spring. And when you like, especially if the weather's cool and then you're wearing arm warmers, you're really not getting that much sun. So there's this, yeah, there's balance in all those things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and well, and it might be a little ironic, but I'll spend five or 10 minutes outside without a shirt on you know, yeah. a couple of times a week too. Yeah. Just to get for that healthy production. Right. And to keep that, you know, I think sometimes it's referred to as like the P450 system, mm -hmm. which is basically course correcting damage DNA. Yep. Your body has a profound ability to heal itself if it's functioning well. Yes. And there's mechanisms for almost to address all disease, but mm -hmm. a lot of us are pretty detached from that divine healing wisdom. Agreed. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. The, the body is the perfect healing machine. You just have yeah. to give it the tools and get out of the way. Right. Right. The water, the nutrients, the time, the air, proper breathing. Yeah. Some positive thought and then let it do its thing. But yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming in and spending time today and sharing your thoughts and your stories and your wisdom. I appreciate it very yeah. much. Thank you. It's always a, a pleasure to dig into technology and lifestyle with you and um, mine your experience mm -hmm. on a similar path. Yeah. Very enjoyable. Thank you. All right. I'd like to express my gratitude for enjoying the episode with Travis Brown. I'm sure you'll agree. He shared some interesting nuggets. One thing I neglected to ask Travis about was his win at the 2002 Single Speed World cyclocross championships and those world championships should be viewed in air quotes because it's single speed 
So what's unique about this race is when you win, you are required to get a tattoo that displays your victory. It's just how it goes. So we're going to put a link in the show notes to uh, Travis displaying his tattoo that he, he earned after his victory. Also, I distinctly remember seeing the trophy from this victory in his house many years ago. And if memory serves, it was a glass jar with a bisected pig fetus in it. So that tells you a lot about cyclocross and then the subchapter of cyclocross, that which is single speed. It's a special beast. Thanks again for listening. If you want to make some comments about this or any of my other episodes, hit me on the old electronic mailings. Make the keyboard mudras. Cycling in alignment at fastlabs.com. Standard disclaimer, my inbox is exploding. Let's take a look. Let's just see where it's at right now, just for fun. I don't know how you manage your inbox, but I shoot for zero. And right now I'm at 34. Some of you will laugh because I know there are people out there who run around with giant red numbers on their inboxes, like 1,076. That is not how I roll. That stuff goes away. But these 34 emails are all emails that I actually must respond to with words, complete sentences maybe even, possibly misspelled at times. But I do my best. So uh, I do enjoy your feedback. I've been getting a lot of feedback on the podcast and I appreciate that. Some of it's been positive. Much of it's been really positive. A lot of it's been, you're an idiot. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. And I read all the feedback and I consider all of it. So good, bad, or otherwise, send me your thoughts. Thanks. Have a nice day. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, none of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening. <laughs>